Welcome, everyone, to the Whole Health Cure Podcast. I'm Dr. Sharon Berquist, a practicing internal medicine physician, associate professor at Emory University, scientist with a focus on optimizing well-being and longevity, and pioneer in lifestyle medicine. Over the past three decades, I've worked with thousands of patients, improving their health using nutrition, exercise, and emotional health as medicine. And this podcast is dedicated to going behind the scenes to give you the scientifically validated information you need for achieving whole health naturally. Now, my mission when I started this podcast four years ago was to share the most up-to-date science that you can put into use towards improving your health. And one of the key areas we've talked about on this podcast is the gut health connection and the fascinating and complex role of the microbiome. And today we're going to talk about a different dimension of gut health, the gut-brain connection in plant-based nutrition, specifically for irritable bowel disease or IBS. And I am very excited to be joined by the amazing Desiree Nielsen. Desiree is a registered dietitian with a focus on plant-based nutrition and gut health, host of the All Sorts podcast, and author of Good for Your Gut, a best-selling, and I might add instant best-selling, cookbook on digestive health. Her practice focus is complex chronic digestive and inflammatory disease and plant-based approaches to optimal health. Desiree, welcome. Thank you so much, Sharon. I'm so excited to get to talk to you about, admittedly, one of my favorite topics. <laughs> yeah, and Desiree, you know, complex and chronic digestive and inflammatory diseases are really some of the hardest conditions to manage. And they're also very common, I know, in my practice, and obviously that's your area of specialty. So I'm so excited to have you on the show today. And I work with dietitians on a wide variety of different types of diseases. And I want to start by asking how you developed your focus on gut health and plant-based nutrition. You know, it found me, although I will say before I became a dietitian, I was already a vegetarian and I went fully plant-based in my 30s. But my initial focus or area of interest when I was going through my dietetics education was actually oncology. And one of the reasons for that is that I had you know, this interest in, you know, truly integrative medicine. So using the most evidence-based approaches, but that brought in because, you know, particularly I'm a little bit, you know, for anyone listening to this who's in their 20s, like I'm a little bit older. And so the idea that like nutrition was a part of medicine in the 90s and early 2000s was pretty revolutionary. Like that was integrative medicine to use stress management, to use movement, to use nutrition. And so I was really interested in oncology because I thought that it was an area where there was a, a lot of openness to, you know, combining standard care with nutrition. And what ended up happening is I landed in a health food store for my very first job. So I became the nutrition manager for a local chain of health food stores. And I just couldn't ignore the fact that every single day people were coming in saying there was something wrong with their gut that they didn't know what was wrong, that, you know, they had gone to their physician and the physician said, like, all your tests are clear, like nothing is showing up. And so I just dove into this world. I'm like, I didn't know that much about the gut. I never took a single microbiology class in undergrad. Oh boy, do I wish I had. And so I just dove into the research and started listening to, you know, the clients coming in. And it's like, how can I learn enough to support these people because they really need my help. Yeah, and, and Desiree, I think, you know, you really hit it home with a similar path for me when you mentioned that a lot of the people struggling 
are ones who have had normal test results, right? So I see a lot of people in internal medicine who have had a battery of tests, usually with a gastroenterologist. And kind of that communication piece, that test being normal doesn't mean there is nothing wrong, is really, I think, a very important one to have, because I think just validating that you can have a problem that doesn't have a test to concretely diagnose is so important. And I think that also contributed to my path focusing on how do we develop the biomarkers, you know, for these harder to diagnose conditions, but also from a management standpoint, right? Because the symptoms don't go away, you still need to manage that, right? And so you discovered there's a need, what did you do next? You know, so my next step was really, like I said, to dive into the research. And, you know, for people listening, it's an important reminder, like back when I got started, you know, in, oh my gosh, like 2008, 2009, 2010, from my colleagues, the low FODMAP diet was still considered controversial at this point. And, you know, we'll talk about I'm sure more about what low FODMAP is because it's currently our most evidence-based approach for irritable bowel syndrome. But, you know, like imagine to be in that time where there's a gulf between where the evidence leaves off and, you know, our clients or patients experience. And so my goal was to really just listen. And I think that's so important for us as health professionals to really listen to people's experiences because they know their bodies. They know what feels right and what doesn't. And then I did whatever I could using whatever tools I had. You know, maybe if if bowel movements were off, well, maybe we could figure out cilium. Like maybe we could try cilium and see. It was often this trial and error approach. And what I feel so fortunate with, you know, you know, 12 years later is that we have so much evidence now to help guide us. It doesn't cover everything, but there is so much more evidence to guide us into supporting people with digestive health conditions like Crohn's disease, like irritable bowel syndrome. And it hasn't gotten easier, but we do have more tools in our toolkit. Oh, absolutely. And and I think leaning into the intuitive part is so important as well. And, you know, it sounds like you know, we both have parallel stories in terms of how long we've been in healthcare and how there's been really an evolution in terms of how we approach a lot of things where there isn't a clear, concrete guideline of what we should be doing. And this intuitive piece is so important because there's so much individual variability. Right. So we learn from our patients as we're trying to help them. It's <laughs> mutually beneficial. Right. Yeah. So as you evolved, how did you get into gut health? And it sounds like you've been practicing plant based nutrition for a while. But how did your practice then evolve or what happened next? Yeah. Well, after my time in the health food store, you know, I actually had a child in that span. I was there for like almost five years and had a child in the middle. And it went from a professional interest to now a personal interest because I ended up with irritable bowel syndrome after the birth of my first child. (laughs) And well, now I have skin in the game. So, you know, I just became even more immersed in this area and I really wanted to be able to open a practice. So I opened a private practice and, you know, particularly for nutrition in Canada, uh, you know, dietetics is a very small field. So pretty quickly, my friends and colleagues would start sending people my way because they're like, I don't know what to do with this. This person has irritable bowel syndrome. I don't know, like send them to Desiree, (laughs) like Desiree, Desiree can help. And so it was really just, you know, through private practice. And I think you, 
very much attract the clients and patients who need you. And so the cases just got more and more complex. We started with irritable bowel syndrome, celiac disease. I had a, a really strong foundation in celiac disease as well from my work in the health food store. And it just sort of evolved from there. And I loved the opportunity to sort of look at each case like a puzzle. You know, there were some elements I've seen before, but then there would be a few that I hadn't, you know. And so to really sort of fit the science of dietetics, but also with the art of clinical practice, that ability to like hear patients and clients' stories, to take the functional aspects of food. You know, I'll go back to the psyllium example. You know, if we want to firm up stools, well, psyllium is a gelling fiber. So we use that functional aspect of that fiber to help support bowel movements in that way. And over time, you just pick up more tools and pop them in your toolkit. And yeah, I mean, it sort of led to where I was today. I wrote Good for Your Gut because I felt like I had so much to share. And gut health has become this huge trend. And it really wasn't a decade ago. It was very much, you know, if people were just struggling quietly, they didn't have nearly as much information, particularly good quality information. But I just wanted to be able to put down in written form for people who don't necessarily have access to dietitians and they're just adrift on the internet with all sorts of, you know, things coming their way. I wanted to give them the approach that we take in our practice here to help give them the tools and the information to start to regain control or at least a better relationship with food and their body. Yeah, and you're right in that there has been a much greater interest in gut health. And I think part of that may also be because some things that were once people would consider normal per se, we now know aren't. But I think a lot of people have a very high threshold of what they will just live with. On that note, can you describe what is IBS? Yeah. So irritable bowel syndrome is considered a disorder of gut brain communication. And it's that definition is really telling, particularly for someone like me, who I know my symptoms are very much nervous system and stress related. But we diagnose IBS in the following ways. So and there's been a bit of a change recently. So sometimes when you're looking at the research, there actually seems like there's fewer people with IBS <laughs> these days, because the new room four criteria are actually much more stringent, but you need to have recurrent abdominal pain. And it's related to at least two or more of the following. So it's going to change around your bowel movements. Like the bowel movement is going to relieve it or make it worse. It's That pain is going to be associated with a change in like the frequency of your bowel movements. So maybe you end up going way more or way less or a change in the actual like form and appearance of stool. So it's going to get much harder to pass. It's going to get much looser. And, you know, typically this is going to have been going on for like at least six months. So the diagnostic criteria says it must have initiated at least six months ago. And another thing that I find too is because the diagnostic criteria talks about it occurring at least one day a week, I have never in over a decade of practice seen anyone with IBS who was not impacted by these symptoms on a daily basis. And I think it be, can be really easy for folks listening who maybe don't have as much experience with irritable bowel syndrome. That's like, oh, well, it's not as serious as celiac disease or the inflammatory bowel diseases because, you know, many people don't get their bowel resected because they have IBS. And yet, you know, I came across data and I might not get the exact statistic correct, but there was a study that looked at quality of life and irritable bowel syndrome. And they asked people whether or not they would accept, I think it was a 10% risk of death for medication that would eliminate 99% of their symptoms. 
many people would take that option. And so it just really sort of speaks to the severity and the impact that irritable bowel syndrome has on someone's life, which I think we greatly underestimate as practitioners even. And then also we greatly underestimate what it means to live with this condition, never never knowing if you're going to make it on your morning commute. I mean, you come from a city where there's a huge, as do I, like a huge commute. If you live in the burbs and you're coming into the sun, you could be in your car for an hour. You could be in your car for 90 minutes and being worried that you would have to go to the bathroom on that commute. And maybe that day, because you're not certain of your bowel habits, you might choose to call in sick because you just don't know if you're going to make your morning commute. Like, that's significant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so as you're saying, the symptoms can be quite varied, and it's pretty common, right? So I know in in my practice, maybe about 15% of people. So it's probably a lot more people have irritable bowel then maybe recognize it then maybe recognize and one of the biggest challenges with gastrointestinal conditions is the amount of stigma i mean we're talking about poop here like it's not polite water cooler conversation you're like oh how was your weekend well actually i had to go to the bathroom like 16 times this weekend so i didn't get to do anything fun like we don't talk to our colleagues we don't talk to our friends about it um not until you get to a certain age yeah it's true (laughs) then you're allowed to (laughs) yeah exactly we as we get older we get away with it or if we're talking about our baby's poops then we get to talk about poop until like you know until the cows come home you know so the stigma also really gets in the way of you know seeking support for your condition but yeah I mean the average is anywhere between yeah like 10 or 15 percent with room 4 criteria and some of the more recent studies the room 4 criteria because it, it looks for pain as opposed to what is defined as discomfort you know these new numbers are like seven or eight percent but it's a really common condition yeah and Desiree when someone is you know new to your practice and they say look I have these symptoms and you're pretty confident it's IBS, how do you begin structuring a plan for them? Yeah. So, you know, as much as possible, our commitment is always to, you know, patient-centered care. And so particularly when we're looking at nutrition, there are so many barriers to following even, you know, potentially an amazing evidence-based course like the low FODMAP diet, you know, the affordability of the diet, the ability of people to sort of like comprehend and manage the stress of dietary change. And that's, it's one of the biggest challenges in nutrition is that, you know, if we could just toss someone a handout and be like, eat these things and you'll be fine. And then they could just magically do it, you know, but so many things get in the way. Someone might work two jobs. Someone might not have, you know, the ability to afford low FODMAP options, for example, they just might have so much going on that the stress of trying to, oh, is, you know, can I eat apples? Can I eat blueberries? And like, remember these things can be a huge burden for folks. So a big part of it is to understand, we we ask everyone, you know, like, what is your life like? Like, how much time do you have to cook? Do you have five minutes? Do you have an hour? Do you like cooking? Like, what's your grocery shopping like? Like, do you have difficulty maintaining like a healthy diet on your budget, for example. And then we really try and work with wherever people are at in terms of their, you know, their current lifestyle, their current affordability, their current cooking ability, and choose the best path forward. And, you know, that is really where that art of dietetics comes in, because for low FODMAP diet, we have really great research to suggest that a low FODMAP approach works in 50 to 80% of people who try it in terms of symptom management. But if it's too much for you, 
if you're like, I just can't handle this approach, it's just too complicated for me right now, then we go another way. We could choose FODMAP light. We could work on stress. We could work on simply getting up soluble fiber sources because they're going to be less irritating to the gut and perhaps help with regulation of bowel movements. It is really like putting a puzzle piece together. And I always tell our clients that it's not your job to do everything that I say to a T. It's my job to figure out a course of treatment that works for you. Yeah, yeah. And you've mentioned FODMAPs. Can you talk a little bit more about, first of all, what does it stand for? (laughs) If you can say it, it's kind of hard to pronounce and what that means. Yeah, so there's a reason we use an acronym. So FODMAP is fermentable oligo, dye, and monosaccharides and polyols. And in English, what that means is that these are carbohydrates that by quirk of their chemical structure or your physiology, you do not digest and absorb 100%. We all have varying abilities to digest and absorb these FODMAPs. And, you know, they're actually a really great thing for most of us. Most of our healthiest foods, garlic, onions, whole wheat, ripe bananas, apples, they're all very high in FODMAPs. And the FODMAPs are, so there are fructans and the galacto-oligosaccharides, which are really just like long chains of carbohydrates, but they're found in wheat or chickpeas, for example. Like fructose is found in most fruits, but what makes a fruit high FODMAP or high fructose is the amount of free fructose. So is the glucose and fructose two single sugars found really commonly in fruits? Are they in balance? Or is there more fructose? So, for example, apples have more free fructose. They're a high FODMAP fruit. Lactose and dairy is a classic one. Most people know about lactose intolerance. It's very common, essentially, of people of, like, almost all global descent except northern Europeans. And then finally, the polyols. So these are sugar alcohols that are really common in foods, things like mushrooms and mangoes. So following a low FODMAP diet is about knowing like which foods in sort of each category are lower FODMAP and going to be okay for you during this diet or higher FODMAP and really healthy for gut health for everyone without IBS. But for you, you might want to take them down for a time. Yeah, and, and it sounds really tricky, right? Because sometimes with diet, we try and make generalizations, i.e. most people feel, okay, if we can avoid processed foods, eat more whole food, we're generally doing pretty well. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty big battle right there. And this is really even beyond that, right? Because you've mentioned some really healthy foods. Yeah. And ones that I love eating. And, and how can a person know what's on the low versus high FODMAPs, how do you advise them from there? Yeah, so what you need to have, you simply need to have a list. And so I put one in good for your gut, of course, but the, my favorite tool for people who are on low FODMAP, because you can keep it close at hand, the university that is really world renowned for their research on FODMAPs and food, Monash University in Australia, they produce an app. And so it's great because you can just plug in a food and then it will pop up exactly how much because it's all dose dependent. So you can see that you can eat a quarter cup of canned rinsed chickpeas, but you can't eat a half a cup if you want to stay low FODMAP. And what I love about that app is that all the money goes back into research. It's a nonprofit app. It's just about supporting the research that Monash is already doing. 
And there's another challenge I'm sure you face with a lot of your patients. It's going from single ingredients to a meal, right? Because I, obviously you may avoid chickpeas, but what if there's hummus in your meal? You know, it's just, it's so complicated trying to put a meal together out of single ingredients that are low FODMAP. So how do you help people through that part? Yeah, providing low FODMAP recipes, I think is really critical. And it's, you know, that was probably the biggest surprise in my dietetics career, because we're so much taught to counsel on nutrients and food. For example, like try to consume 25 to 38 grams of fiber per day. But what does that mean in food? Like, what does that mean, you know, versus what you put on your dinner plate? And You know, I never imagined at this point in my career that I would develop recipes for a living, but it's so much more effective as a healthcare practitioner to give the information. People need the knowledge. People need the why. They need to attach to the why in order to have more motivation to stay compliant with your recommendations. But then you have to make it really easy. And the way we make it easy is by providing them the recipes do the guesswork for them. And that's why in the book I've got, I do have low FODMAP recipes on my website, but I have over 30 in the book because one of the other challenges that I would find because I'm fully plant-based and our practice is plant-based, we would have clients coming in whose other health care practitioner, whether it was a dietitian, a physician, or a naturopathic doctor, told them that now that they have irritable bowel syndrome, they can no longer be plant-based. So they would have to give up being plant-based in order to take care of IBS, which couldn't be further from the truth. It's just that these practitioners didn't have enough knowledge of a plant-based diet to say, here are your low FODMAP options. Yeah, yeah. And I think as a patient, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening get so much conflicting information Right. And from well-reputed professionals, right? It's not just Google searching. It's people in the best of intentions having had different training or different knowledge just will say things. And, and those few words just carry a lot of weight in how people try and incorporate it. Yeah. So then the recipes, I think that's really tremendous because putting single ingredients together into a meal and making it delicious, that's hard. You know, it is hard, you know, as someone who spent most of her 20s popping, you know, steamed broccoli on top of boxed mac and cheese and like as the height of cuisine, (laughs) learning to cook and learning how to make these foods flavorful because that's such a big piece. I, you know, food is nutrition, absolutely. But food is so much more than that. You know, food is a way that we connect with other human beings. Food is a huge part of our cultures. Food is an opportunity to experience joy and pleasure multiple times in our day. And I mean, not every meal that you eat has to be, you know, restaurant worthy. Sometimes you just got to pop something in a pan really quickly because you're hungry and you've got to eat. But the opportunity to really enjoy your food, because so often we associate nutrition and particularly healthy eating with deprivation, with lack of enjoyment, with lack of flavor, and it doesn't need to be that way. We can nourish our bodies and eat food that we enjoy. There should be zero compromise. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, we've 
talked about approaching IBS from nourishing the gut, but IBS is bigger than that, right? So there's Mm -hmm. a connection with the brain, as you mentioned. Can you talk more about kind of the bigger picture of other ways you support your clients? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we talk a lot about stress and we talk a lot about mental health. You know, we call the gut the second brain. And the reason we do is that it's heavily innervated. You know, so so often, you know, we talk about sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems, right? Like our fight or flight or our rest and digest. But we don't often talk about the enteric nervous system, which is the nervous system of the gut. And it's absolutely responsible for motility, which is of primary importance in IBS. Motility is the movement of the gut, and it can be too fast, it can be too slow, it can be erratic. The nervous system comes into play with how our gut moves. But what I find really fascinating in the interaction that I find just so interesting is the gut microbiome and the nervous system in the gut. So when we feed our gut microbes the fibers that they crave, they make short-chain fatty acids. And these short-chain fatty acids are the bacterial way of communicating. They communicate with our immune system in our gut. They communicate with the nervous system in the gut. The amount of serotonin that is released in the enteric or gut-based nervous system, 95% of all of the serotonin in our body is in our enteric nervous system, not in our central nervous system. And, you know, for a while it was like, oh, well, that's interesting. (laughs) That's interesting. You know, we'll just note that observation. But when we look at something like irritable bowel syndrome, you know, there is some evidence suggesting that particularly for people with diarrhea predominant irritable bowel syndrome, that there may be a challenge with too much serotonin remaining in the gut space because that serotonin can induce that erratic and urgent motility in the gut. When we get food poisoning, it's a huge bolus of serotonin that's like, whoop, all right, time to clear the gut out. You know, so in IBS, serotonin and the level of serotonin in the body, which can be influenced by our gut microbiome, may have some role to play there. And so, When we talk with our clients, nutrition is one piece of it, but absolutely mental health and stress levels and rest is another huge piece of it. And it really takes a lot of introspection and a lot of, you know, reconnecting to your body, which I think so many of us can be rather disconnected in how we feel and paying attention to what our body is telling us. And we live in a very fast paced, always on society now. And We've gotten really good at doing it. So consciously, we're like, oh, no, I'm not too stressed. But, you know, I've just asked that of a client who is a trial lawyer who works 75 hours a week. And, you know, they also are renovating their house and have been living out of like, you know, apartment while all of this is going on. It's like, okay, so you say you're not stressed, but absolutely for like our nervous system, that's a 10 out of 10 right now. You gave me like a 4 out of 10 and that's a 10 out of 10. And what I like to tell my clients is you can consciously choose not to acknowledge the stress, but your nervous system is far more primal. Your nervous system cannot be fooled. And so we will work a lot with, even if it's something as simple as you need to take 10 minutes out twice a day to move away from all electronics. You're gonna move away from your phone, you're gonna move away from your laptop, and you're just gonna do some deep breathing. Or we will get them to commit to time outside if they have access to that. Something in the day that is non-negotiable, 20 to 30 minutes that will help them disconnect, that will help them get back into their body. 
slow their breathing down and give them time to relax. It's absolutely critical. And we know in irritable bowel syndrome as well that there is increased anxiety and depression in people who have IBS. And there's been some really interesting studies looking at which is the chicken and which is the egg. And, you know, a couple of them have found that if you follow patients for a year after first diagnosis and their first diagnosis is either irritable bowel syndrome or it's anxiety or depression, the folks that started with a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome are far more likely to get diagnosed with anxiety or depression in 365 days than the folks who started out with a diagnosis of anxiety or depression. So we know there has to be some foundational piece with the structure and function of the gut in irritable bowel syndrome that is impacting our nervous system. And Desiree, you know, a really important point that you made is, you know, there's the brain-gut connection, but it's really three-way, right? So it's brain-gut microbiome, right, with the gut bacteria. And it's a two-way connection, right? So you just illustrated beautifully how important it is to treat the brain, to treat the gut, and certainly with diet, treating the gut, if you will, to treat the brain. How about the role of the microbiome? Like, Do you help design any diet or have any dietary tips of altering microbiome in this larger picture of this brain-gut communication? Absolutely. You know, I mean, one of One of the reasons why plant-based eating is such a huge foundation in my practice as opposed to in my personal life is that we know one of the most powerful things that you can do to help foster a diverse and healthy gut microbiome is to eat as many high fiber plants as humanly possible. And so depending on the client, Sometimes I will look at their dietary history because we always take dietary histories. I will look and I say, you know what? I don't know if we have to go to low FODMAP just yet. My goal is always to do the least restrictive, the lightest intervention possible to find results. And so I might say, you know what? There's not a lot of fiber here. I'm not seeing a lot of fruits and vegetables here. And we might actually work at increasing the high FODMAP foods increasing the high fiber foods slowly over time. People really need to watch their tolerance because one of the other things that, you know, oftentimes when people are really interested in going plant-based, they're like, oh, but you know, all these foods, they make me gassy, they make me bloated, like they just, it seems like I must be intolerant to them. And I say, it's not intolerant. It is a lack of knowledge or a lack of training for your gut. Like you can think of your gut as a muscle. We all know that running is good for us. But if we were on the couch, I wouldn't try to run like a half marathon tomorrow. You know, if I did, I would feel miserable. I'd probably pass out, you know, three miles. in, And I wouldn't say, oh, running is bad for everybody. No, I'm just not trained for it. And so we have to train our gut to appreciate and to process plants happily, slowly and over time. So that might be the first thing we do in terms of fostering the gut microbiome. It's about increasing whole plant foods increasing fiber as tolerated and increasing the diversity of the plants that we consume as well because we do have some data from the American Gut Project to suggest it's not just about getting 25 grams of fiber from nothing but broccoli but eating a diversity of plant foods also helps to create diversity in our gut microbiome and like all things in nature a diverse ecosystem is the most robust and resilient. So that's the first place that I will start if I can. The low FODMAP diet is a gut microbiome altering diet. 
the reason why FODMAPs can enhance symptoms in irritable bowel syndrome is really twofold in terms of the major things that we know now. The first is that some of them are osmotic sugars, like fructose or lactose, for example. And that means that they're going to draw water to themselves and that water can loosen up the stool. But the other thing that happens is that because we did not digest and absorb these carbohydrates, they remain in the gut where they can be fermented by the gut bacteria there. And so we actually do have not enough, but some data to suggest that a low FODMAP diet does actually change the gut microbiome, potentially for benefit in the short term, potentially for detriment in the long term. So that's the other thing that people need to know. Low FODMAP is not a life sentence. When you have irritable bowel syndrome, you don't just say, I'm going to eat low FODMAP for the rest of my life. No, it is a short term learning diet. If we feel better, we start to systematically reintroduce the FODMAPs to see what your unique tolerance for these foods are. And the goal is always as diverse and liberalized a diet as possible for the long term. That is so tremendously helpful, Desiree. So I have one final question. If there's one thing you wish everybody knew and that you need to tell your clients over and over, what would you say that that is? The most important thing is to just eat more plants. Like if we are going to keep it as simple, as profound, and as effective as possible, eating more whole plant foods is the hack. It is the greatest thing that we can all do for better gut health now, but also into the future. Yeah, absolutely. Desiree, thank you so much. The information you shared is just so helpful because it's so complicated. And I love getting your perspective from, you know, doing the work of working with challenging situations and really problem solving with people. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for just the amazing recipes. I love your cookbook. We recommend it all the time to our patients and and just how much you've just helped people on a larger scale. So thank you for all the work that you do. Well, and thank you so much for the opportunity to have these conversations, because the more people we can share this information with, the more people can feel better. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and share it with a friend. I really love hearing feedback, so please leave a review to let me know what you think and rate this podcast. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness and is copyrighted by Emory University. Until next time, do something to help improve your whole health naturally.